Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number two of Savoir Fair, a Disco Elysium podcast. Um, a lot has happened since the last time we recorded. Mainly, Reed. Oh, sorry, I'll introduce myself before I get. I just got so excited to start talking about this game again. I'm Kyle Cookstell. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Josh Calixto of Rolling Stone, Kotaku, and other places, as well as Reed McCarter of uh, Bullet Points. Who is currently read? You're running a series on Disco Elysium right now in November, or what is the what oh, is yeah. the state of that? Great, great synergy there. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah. For it's almost <laughs> like we planned it. I don't know <laughs> for remembering to do that. I don't know if it'll be. There might be a full, full four articles by the time this is up. I don't know though. I'm nice. not sure. It, one of them so far has been Josh. You had a post in Bullet Points on disco i did i talked about the player choice and how it's kind of revolutionary compared to the way that that stuff typically functions in game video games um i talked about that a bit on the last episode of the podcast but i was able to go into a lot more detail talk about some decision theory about how people make choices in real life and how disco elysium kind of represents that decision making process a lot better than typical video games do where they usually give you like you know a black and white type of answer they give you like two they basically build four different characters and then let you play as whichever one you want or a mix of all of them and this is just one character that whose brain is going in different directions at all times much like ours are and uh you can kind of pick and choose which threads to go along with over the course of the game but it doesn't feel like harry is drastically different depending on how you play the game because it's all really consistent. And um, the, the the sheer generosity of the game is that every single one of those paths you choose is like a fully fleshed character that is, that is still like literary and worth exploring. So you don't really feel like you're losing a ton, even though you can be missing out on so much in the game and still feel like you got like this definitive experience. Um, so go check that out. Yeah. See, I was one thing that's crazy about that article too is that like I remember people always talk about like the Tetris effect where you um like if you play a lot of Tetris, you start like seeing Tetris blocks in real life. And mm. I used to play a lot of Tetris and I never really had that happen to me. I didn't really understand that. Um, but kind of what you're talking about with Disco Elysium, like and how it actually models the mind, I feel like I have like the disco effect where I've actually felt myself in real life talking to people that are doing stuff or being like, man, if I would have passed that fucking, uh, I don't know, like hand-eye coordination check or like if my perception was a little higher, this would have happened. Um, and it's never like so obvious where I'm like thinking about it all the time, but I definitely, right. things will happen recently. And I'll just, I'll think about like how those actions actually map to Disco's skills which is like a fucking crazy, dumb, nerdy thing. But it feels like because for because the game is like so deep and so engaging and you're engaging with these systems like so frequently for like at least 30 plus hours, your mind starts to kind of model these checks and understand how they happen. And I'm still kind of like living in the hangover of that, um, which has been really weird. I don't know if you guys have had a similar experience. You got the afterglow. Yeah, no, I have. I actually have had a similar experience where I'll have something that I have to say. And I've always been the type of person who kind of self-edits as I speak. 
I think I've gotten slightly better at that over the years, but I'll have, you know, some sort of thread in my mind that I want to pursue. And I, I maybe I want to say this sentence, but, you know, in the middle of the sentence, I kind of, okay, do I want to take it in this direction or do I want to take it in this direction? Uh, or if someone asks me a question, I'll think, should I answer it this way or should I answer it this way? Because I think a lot like a, I guess like a writer. Um, and I, I definitely think a lot about what I say before I say it. So I do feel like those threads in my brain of like, I could say this thing and that will lead to me being perceived as one type of person, or I can say this thing and then that will lead me to being perceived as a different type of person. Um, and both of those thoughts in my head are only there because like I am me as an individual who's shaped by my own experiences that like other people haven't had. But at the same time, like depending on what I actually choose to say is how I, you know, project myself out into the world, which is just, which is what Disco Elysium models really, really well. And I think it hasn't, um, I feel like a lot of people, I, I'm seeing a lot of weird stuff critically with this game where I'm like, I'm not seeing it get the praise that it deserves when it comes to shit like this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I see a lot of people talking about RPG systems and and how they work and whether or not they're good enough. And, you know, I've, I think I've seen some criticisms of this game and like how it uses RPG-esque checks. But I think that the way that it uses those is just on a different level um, to the point. It's also like everywhere. It's yeah. like, I think for, for so many games, it's like, it's like you're playing Mass Effect or something. And like, if you like, you get like the Paragon option or the Renegade option, like five times in the whole game. Whereas this is like every conversation, multiple times in that same conversation, sometimes like within the same conversation, like streak, you'll just have this, these checks happen all the time. Um, to a degree that also feels like probably more revolutionary even than like a lot of the CRPGs that like pioneered a lot of computer game role-playing. Um, or even then those checks were kind of what you're talking about initially where they're much more aligned to sort of like the D&D sort of alignment chart style where it's like this is the good one and this is the bad one. And like games like Planescape Torment that kind of lets you wallow in some of the weirdness of those decision makings still feels like kind of pales in comparison to how often – Disco is like saying your skills like really matter all the time in every conversation. Uh, and that's just, it's like it, the, yeah, the scale is insane. And just to call it like an RPG check feels like a minification of like the scale that these things exist at in the game. Yeah. And it's like, you call you could call those dialogue trees, but this is like a full on circuit. like, uh, what the fuck? This is like a full on brain with like synapses <laughs> and different, just like nerves and nodes and shit that are all interconnected and they're everywhere. It's just, it's pervasive to the well, point like, where you can't even begin to imagine it. I think like so many games, it's like the, some stuff and there, there has been, I think a lot of good writing about this game so far, which is better than if this thing was just like languishing in obscurity for the next six months or something or in the next couple of years. And then people actually, start coming around to it and realizing that it's doing some interesting things. Um, but there is that kind of talk that you're both mentioning where it's like kind of discussed in terms of what is this game as an RPG and these conventions of RPGs that have come before. And I feel like the game tries to break the kind of like gamer brain way of thinking about it pretty quickly <laughs> at the beginning where it's like, 
hear these like different voices talking to you. And at first it seems like, I don't know, not to knock him. I know lots of people enjoy his writing, but that like Chris Avalon thing of like, here's a bunch of like weird voices from the ether coming to talk to you about like fairy dust and elves and stuff. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. But in, you know, in like multiple dimensions and everything, but instead it's like, no, this is trying to model these like, you know, conversation systems kind of, or like dialogue trees or whatever that are just kind of trying to show this is the totality of this dude's brain. And it doesn't mean that that's actually what he's going to put out into the world. It's just like, like Josh was saying, like all the different things that are just firing in his head all the time. Like a lot that's, of people. Dude, that's such a, that's such an interesting point. Like how much, like in so, in so many RPGs, all these systems act as like, there's like a one-to-one mapping between like your ability to do something and its external effect on the world. And that's, I think you just touched on something that's actually really crazy about this game is that that's not the case. Like, you can have conversations like literally with yourself and your emotions and your ideas. And, but that doesn't necessarily map directly into your actions in the game. Um, which is like so interesting. Cause I think if it was more about RPG checks, it's like, you know, you pass this check and like, there is definitely that stuff in the game where like you do a check and there's a phys- physical manifestation of the check succeeding or failing in the world. But for a lot of stuff, it's like, it just, it's just things that are in this guy's mind all of the time. Um, which I think is like feels very very new. The stuff that you don't say or do is also part of your character, right? In this game, which is not a thing that you see in video games like ever. I think that's why it all feels really rich because you know I remember a lot of dialogue options that I didn't pick, you know, mm-hmm. and like that's all stuff that canonically is going through his head, and that like also defines his character, which is fucking it's it's interesting too because this is all philosophical shit too right it's like this developer philosophy of like how the soul works and how the brain works there's like five different articles to be written about there which is like the philosophy of this game and how it perceives mm-hmm. human thought and the way that we behave in the real world um any anyway i i actually have a good segue here which is i want to talk about per, potentially the most video gamey choice um, matrix that we have in this game, which I would argue is with Everett Claire. How do you pronounce that? How do you pronounce I think it's that? Just Everett. Everett. Yeah, mm-hmm. Everett. Oh, that's what I was saying. Everett Claire. Everett. Everett Claire. The toad I, guy. Would you agree that this is? Because for me, when I I went to Claire, it felt the most make this choose these people or choose these people go this way or that way, mm-hmm. and I think that set up this expectation for the game that it was going to work like a lot of other video games where it was like, I have a couple different choices how to deal with this mission. Um, but in the end, I'm going to make like one big choice, whether I side with him, you know, or, or I don't type of thing. And, um, that would shape like a lot of the game. And I thought that that was going to kind of repeat itself. But in the future, I felt like most of the other interactions I have were not nearly as, polarizing or binary in the decisions that you end up making yeah if, if the stuff with him feels like in some ways like kind of ancillary like it feels like and when the as the game sorts of un, unfolds you kind of like lose a little bit of that thread i feel like but at the time when you're kind of first learning about him it's such an ordeal to get to him yeah it feels like very video game he's like blocked up in basically a tower kind of far away 
Um, and he's like a boss fight, you know? Where- yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel like it's going to have all this thing. I guess we should contextualize some of this stuff. Uh, Joshua Reed, do you want to like describe to the audience? Actually, before we do this, this podcast will be full of spoilers throughout. So I don't think we can really refrain from holding stuff back. Yeah, no, it's a spoiler um, podcast, but we're only it's talking a spoilers about podcast. like the first. I mean, I don't even want to say we're only going to talk about the first half of the game because we're going to be talking about the events of the first half of the game, but those are also influenced by like what happens later in the game and they're shaped by that and you see them differently based on that stuff. So we'll probably be dipping into some of that stuff, even though that's not going to be the focus. Yeah. So um, do you want you guys want to describe re- kind of like Everett? Who, who is Everett Claire? He is the boss of the... Uh, is it the dock workers union? Is the labor union that's like that you yeah. come across a bunch in uh, in the district that is the Martinez district. Um, so he's the he's the union boss, and he is someone that you want to talk to for probably you know the first at least third or half of the game. Because you, I think we mentioned this in the first episode, like you start investigating the hanged man who you pretty quickly find out uh, was a mercenary who was uh, brought in to kind of like, you know, push around the striking workers, the dock workers in this town. And I think the union pretty quickly says, yeah, we did it. You know, we killed this guy. Yeah. They're like kind of, they're, they're very open about it. Yeah. Because they're like, well, how are you going to, you can't arrest all of us. So we'll just say we did it. Um, And we'll talk more about who actually did it and everything as time goes on. But you spend the first half of the game thinking, well, this is the way that this is set up. Is that the union did it, but you don't know how to proceed with that as a detective. Um, So your goal kind of becomes, well, you have to talk to the union leader. I think it's like one of the first objectives you get. You find out his name is Everett Clare, but um, you everyone who could give you access to him essentially won't. And so when you finally get to him, I think I got to him by uh, you go and you talk to this like really philosophical striker. I forget what his name is. He's like sitting on the crates, and oh, it's like. It's like red something. They just call him red because he wears red. And he's like dyed in the wool communist too. Right? Yeah. He like wants to talk about like the philosophy of communism. And and uh, you finally you get past him. You can also talk to this dude, uh, Measurehead. Is that his name, Josh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is like, and, and we should probably circle back on this at some point too, because there's also the discussion of does this game excuse uh racism by sort of making it like something your character can sympathize with um but measurehead is like this i think purposefully absurd dude who is just like uh has has like covered himself with he's super into phrenology and he's his tattoos are like mapping out like different aspects of the brain and the body because you know, that to him is completely key to race science and he just shouts everything. And uh, you go up to him and he kind of like talks down to you as someone who could never understand because you're inferior racially to him. 
or Harry is. And Kim is just like disgusted with this dude. He's like, don't even give him the fucking time of day. So you have to get past him as well by either kind of like outthinking him or dwelling on race science for a little while and then he'll let you through eventually <laughs> and then oh, like wait, you, you find... went i went up the back way well that's the other one wait, too right what? where you can jump across is yeah. that the other way up yeah what? which i eventually did because i didn't want to fucking talk to this dude but i didn't want to give i got a phd his... in advanced race theory i don't know you guys didn't do that <laughs> i no, did not do I, that i eventually did it because i just I wanted have to talk to him kyle <laughs> Kim was so disappointed. It was hard because I like I picked uh, I picked a route that had zero physical strength, and I was like, "Well, I guess I got to learn about race theory." (laughs) Oh my god! Hate when that happens. (laughs) Hate when that just you know sometimes life puts you in those situations where yeah. Yeah. If only I was stronger, I wouldn't have become a racist. Yeah. (laughs) If only I could jump that gap, I would have. Not if I could jump between in phrenology rooftops uh so i guess long story short you get to Everett claire and he's in his like office which is a shipping container that's all decked out and he has like a nice desk and all these furnishings and then he kind of like uh was it josh was it you who said it's like kind of like a boss fight almost like it yeah, fe- yeah. Or it has that kind of like feel to it because you get the sense that this dude is dangerous and he has an incredible amount of power compared to everyone else you've met so far. And he essentially like quizzes you about what you've been up to and what you think of the union. Um, I guess that's the setup for him. I also want to say that at this point of the game, like I was kind of just overwhelmed with the, all the entangled, like absurd power dynamics going on in this yeah, game. You, had to, like, you have to like, Turn on your adult brain. And, yeah, because like, it's like, really okay, like that. I'm a cop, but in this world, cops don't really have much power, like, at all. The, he's the union boss, but the union kind of rules everything, and he's, like, a corrupt, strong-arm goon with, like, shitloads of cronies, but people also love him, and people hate him. Um, there's the whole... And also, he has a brother, like, that's also a union boss. They switch out. Yeah, he's, like, a twin. yeah. yeah. Um, is he a twin? I don't. I don't remember. But I think is it. Yeah. There's all sorts of shit going. And then you are in this position where you need him because he knows. Because you were just on a drunken bender, you woke up, and you basically have fucking amnesia, and you you have to try to find your gun. He knows where your gun is. He knows where your badge is. He knows like everything about you and what you need. Except at the same time. Like you still have authority here to a certain extent. Um, so there's just so much going on where even when you're picking your answers in this part, you're like, I have to, I'd have to do this like freaking calculus in my brain of like, okay, wait, do I have the upper hand here? Does he have the upper hand? <laughs> and I think that's intentional where it's like, they're trying to make you do this calculus in your head of like, where, where do I stand? What is my power here? Because in the game, they explicitly tell you to use your status as a police officer to just like do crazy shit all the time because you're in a position of authority, Um, which I think is like one really cool, interesting thing about this game. But yeah, you have to like see to what extent that works with him because, you know, he's and he like 
he sort of like he's demurs to everything too. Like he pretends like like he's gonna be super helpful and that he kind of like acknowledges your authority, even though he obviously has way more power than Harry over the entire situation. It's like the it's like kind of like a mob boss dynamic, right? Like Yeah. The cop exactly. is in theory in control, but really like how much power do they actually have as a lone officer in that situation or a lone detective? Well, especially like what Josh was saying, the like the context for the police force in um Revishol slash Martinez is that like the police aren't man, I feel like if a developer is listening to this podcast, they're gonna like rail into us if we got their lore wrong. But <laughs> so apologize in advance if we uh we mess it up. But it's like it's like they're they're not like cops, they're part of this thing called the RCM, which is the Revishol Citizens Militia, which itself is a branch of um it's like the Moore Lintern, which is the Moralist International, which is kind of this overarching like global government entity that like kind of own. It's like it's like the de facto government, and then RCM is kind of a, a branch of, or it's like a branch off of what was the, it's like the I, Insolidium, like police force. It was like the, the group that like was a revolutionary. Anyways, there's like this subgroup of this global kind of like government regime that seems to be mostly a volunteer police force that gets dispatched as kind of like a little bit of the hand of the government, but is also, but has not no specific like political allegiance outside of like trying to enforce the law as best as possible. But like in Martinez, like Reed and Josh are saying, it's like the cops don't really have cop authority. They're still like a citizen's militia and they do have sort of, they do have like the authority to like call upon people if they need to. And they have like precincts and stuff. But at the same time, it's like the city is kind of owned by the union and like no one in the city is mad this guy has died. In fact, like you walk around and ask people, you know, like, oh, you must have seen that dead body outside for a while. And they're like, yeah, it kind of sucks. Smells bad. But no one's like freaking out. Like, we got to figure out who did this. Like the union itself is pretty open about doing it. And everyone is like also, I mean, this. God, there's so much shit in this game. Like the whole tone of this game is very melancholy. Yeah. That's like the the subtitle of this podcast. There's so much shit in this game. Like the whole game is very melancholy because like Martinez is still kind of recovering from this revolution that they lost. So no one is really trying to like poke their nose where they don't want to because they just watched like their friends get cut down sometimes within their lifetime. So everyone's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like the union said they did it and like they've got their methods. So whatever. And part of the reason you go to Everett is because the woman, I can't remember if you talked to Joyce before you start going to Everett, but it's like, you basically need a name, like who actually did it. And mm. the union people aren't telling you. So you kind of have to go to Everett and be like, yo, like, will you just tell me who did it? Cause I have to give them a name. And then he gets into this other stuff. We start giving you like the runaround and yeah, I don't even know where that was going. Just some context. <laughs> no, it was, I think like so, so much of this stuff in order to, talk about the dynamics and especially like as we get deeper into these things too kind of like setting the scene of what's going on in terms of the history which can be kind of confusing i don't think like you sort of get it almost by osmosis by the end of the game i think like yeah because there is like you know this this own history there were there was a revolution and it's like new form of government and everything. I kind of took it as essentially that uh, Revishal, which is the entire city, or is it the region? 
It's the entire city, I think it's right? The, it's the entire city, and the game takes place in Martinez. Yeah, and which then, is the cause I think, district. Yeah, because then Jamrock is like south, and that's also right. part of Revishol, I think, but it's like the bigger city. Yeah, right. that's right. Um, that it's kind of like the neglected uh, suburb almost of like a neoliberal state that's not doing so hot for the people <laughs> who aren't rich, you know, like, so then you have like all the different things of like, well, it's not doing great, but they do control like the, uh, like they're a port city or they're a port district. Like the dock workers union is powerful because they can, they can, uh, fuck with the economy by halting shipments by going on strike. Um, and so then you see like these people, I think the game is trying to show in a lot of ways, like this is what this kind of place might look like after people have become fired up about a better, possibly better, at least different way of life and had a violent revolution that failed. And then they're all kind of just like trying to pick up the pieces from living in this government that is supposedly fair and like unbiased but obviously like as you see in the game it sucks to be someone who doesn't have money um and so i think like everett claire is you know he's i don't know people have already said about this like oh like what's this game saying like the the unions are, are bad and it's like well yeah like a union can like a, a crooked union can be bad if it absorbs the power like any crooked uh, bureaucracy is going to be bad in this kind of situation because the government isn't uh, like regulating these things fully and taking care of things. So I think like Claire is like he's like this like fucking tick who's just like swollen up on. <laughs> it even look kind of looks like a tick too. He's like yeah, he's like bug eyed and like he's just like he and he I think like very intentionally talks like a like a shitty politician too. I think um, Reed. I think. To, to touch on your point a little bit more, I think the game is just very much about the dangers of ideology um, and just like it's kind of wary of ideology and like people who kind of dedicate their lives to it. And I think that's something that you like really kind of see by the end of the game where it's like oh, yeah. you have all these people whose ideals were crushed and who like gave everything to a specific cause, who act in corrupt ways and it's interesting because this world is so different from ours, right? And I think that's one of the things that they want of this game is to be like, this is a completely fucking different world where the the police force looks totally different than you know it in real life. The unions look different than you know them in real life. And it's the kind of thing where it's meant to make you feel like, huh, is okay. Um, it's kind of uncomfortable because it makes you think about these things in real life of like, okay so do they think that unions are bad do they think this racism is good like with Measurehead again to bring him up um and it's it's one of those things where the world still looks somewhat similar to ours in a material way right when you look at it you know there's like places that are run down there's poverty there's people who are languishing out there there's people who have had their dreams crushed a lot of similarities to the real world despite the fact that almost everything is flipped on its head in a way that feels very jarring to us. Um, 
and so I think like one of the big things of the themes of this game is like kind of reflecting that back onto to us, even though socially the, our mechanisms don't work in the same way that they do in Disco Elysium. Um, I think it's just kind of like shooting it back at us and going like, hey, I maybe it's not a problem with like necessarily a specific ideology, but just like ideology in general and the way that like people dedicate their lives to it and kind of like put themselves on the line and sacrifice you know, a more measured, careful approach. There's, um, I was reading like a, an interview with, I think it was with the Robert Kurvitz, like the lead writer and designer who, um, he was quoting, I think some people who reviewed his like book, like, uh, we're probably sure we'll talk about this at some point. Uh, it's like the sacred air or in the sacred air. It's like the book that he wrote, that Disco Elysium pulls its um, kind of like story from. And I guess critics in Estonia like either coined the term or he make, came up with it, which is this notion of like fantastic realism. So instead of being something that's like magical realism, that's kind of got this sort of, I mean, you often think of like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or like stuff like that, where it's like literal magical elements kind of swimming around inside of the game. Um, Disco Elysium it said is like fantastic realism where it's it's kind of realism that's like magnified to a degree as to kind of like what Josh is saying and in that sense truly like reflect back kind of ways we think about stuff and I mean one of the interesting things about the game too is that in the places where it's more fantastic than others are kind of hidden sometimes so the game like at its face starts feeling like very 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 familiar and it's only through kind of playing it over time do you start to learn you're like wait there's an all-encompassing void between land masses. Hold on. This is not, yeah. <laughs> I thought we were just in like Eastern Europe. I didn't realize <laughs> yeah. that like, and so it, it kind of like, and it drops that stuff slowly enough where it kind of like summons this sense of what the world is, a lot, what, what the world is actually like. And once it kind of does that, you start to see how it's different and how you can kind of respond to it. And what's interesting uh, about is, the way that yeah. the, the pale stuff is uh, presented too, is that it's not, like this mystical fantasy element it's just like this scientific phenomenon like the depths of the ocean or outer space you know what i'm saying it's just like yeah. a mechanic of the way that the world works where it's like difficult to call it fantasy in that vein when i think about the way that fantasy works in other games that are trying to make some big thematic so somewhat political statement and I think of like Dragon Age Origins or something like that, where it's like the Racism elves, <laughs> the elves are like marginalized people in the U.S. who experience racism because they themselves are a different race from the humans. Ah, like, but that's a subversion of how you typically think about elves, because in the Tolkien universe, they're like well-respected and regal beings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, Whereas in yeah. this, it's like, you got this guy who's like spewing race science at you, and then you got this like union boss who's like, theoretically should be like a likable dude who's just like a total corrupt douchebag. And then like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it does not work well, in the same ways with its fantasy and uh, elements. Like, yeah, it's... It's interesting in that it draws on real world things that you might think of as mundane or it even will, you know, say outright 
you know, these people are centrist, these people are fascists, these people are communists, these people are liberals, um, and talk about, you know, a communist party that adheres to all that. Like they even, we'll talk more about this later, but a key figure in this game later is a is a political commissar, which is, you know, distinctly real world communist position in the military. Um, but it's not saying, you know, the 20th century didn't happen in this game. And, you know, as far as I know, there was no Marx. Um, and, you know, you didn't have... It was like Krasnozov is like kind of that. Oh, thing. yeah. No, that's true. So there's like... And KM. Uh. Yeah. yeah, there's a stand-in Marx figure. But, I mean, like more appropriately, I guess, like there was no Russian Revolution, right? There was no... Sure. Right, right, right. Uh, and so I think it, it kind of like reconfigures... It, it takes familiar elements like don't groan or something, but a lot of like what makes Game of Thrones, I think, appealing to people is that it takes this sort of it's got, <laughs> it's got like a way more way more problems to how it imagines like a medieval Western Europe. Um, mm-hmm. But the idea is like it takes these these structures that are drawn from the real world, but says kind of like, you know, you don't get to have any sort of preference for uh these different rulers you don't you know there aren't catholics and protestants in this it's a different context or you know the history the specifics of the history are gone but the systems are still in place so you can kind of like orient yourself based more on your actual political opinions rather than the ones that you may have accrued over a lifetime of kind of like picking up like yes i agree with that and so i have to make my politics fit toward that I I um, think that's what makes this so hard to like wrestle with critically for a lot of the way that criticism works in 2019 which is that if a player says or if a character says something that's like not woke if something is represented in a game as like the opposite of the way that I experience it in real life is it does that map to the game being racist or bad or like anti-union, you know what I'm saying? I, I think, mm. I think that is what's making a lot of this stuff difficult to, for critics to wrestle with right now because the mechanisms aren't really in place to like give that stuff a shot or to like really untangle it and and think about like, hey, how do we parse this? Like, how do you wrestle with Measurehead and the fact that you can manifest yourself as like a racist player? You know. Well, I think it's like that's such. Racist ground I floor. Say. It's such a ground floor stuff for criticism. And I think you have seen, you know, uh, I agree by the way, Cam Kunzelman wrote a really good review of this game on, uh, it was on waypoint, I think. Yeah. Um, and then there's some other stuff. There are definitely, I think like I was trying to mention before, and maybe we had some, maybe in some show notes toward the end, maybe by the time the dust is settled, we'll be able to like pull together some further reading stuff. That would be good. Because oh, yeah, that'd be great. There is stuff kind of uh, that I can't like think of specific titles and right now. But, you know, like the ground floor thing of criticism, I think, is that you should be able to look at a work and not like it's it's kind of like a <laughs> sounds so fucking rude. It's like a childish view to be like this thing said, you know, this this book was written by uh, someone and a character says something uh horrible so therefore the author is horrible like that's not right that's not how any 
art works at all. You know, that I agree, you can't but explore. I think what people are having trouble with and that I have seen in pieces is the fact that you can be a racist in this video. Yeah, game, yeah. Which is like That's, one step beyond reading a racist character in a book. Yeah, and that's like that's more complicated, but I still think that if you're thinking about games in terms of interactive art or entertainment, then the player's participation in something is still not necessarily an endorsement, you know? It's like I, agree. I don't know. No, it's it's too simple to say it, but you know, you can play Grand Theft Auto 4 or something, which is a game about like struggling to be a good person with having no money which you know there's a lot to talk about in that game but it's like the video games cause violent do video games cause violence type of thing where like if you play a racist character is this game gonna make you more racist or something like that you know and i would say also too that this game always has a pretty clear authorial viewpoint on the stuff it's showing i think it's like pretty clear that measurehead is not someone you're supposed to think is cool or smart (laughs) you know like he's a big mean dipshit you know like and if you make harry really despicable i don't think he's more endearing because of it i think he just seems like someone who's kind of lost the plot also i think like i mean i never despite having studied uh advanced race theory and internalized the race enigma um like in game in game of course (laughs) in game in game in game like when Harry, I think I, I mean I forgot that thought pretty soon soon after. But as I when I had that thought, it was very clear like that other people in the game did not respond positively to any sort of like racism that people besides people who were act- actively racist. Mm-hmm. So I think like you're saying, Reed, it's it's very not the case that like as soon as you're racist, everyone is like on your team. It is still like a bad thing, and I think the game is not trying to say that it's an endorsement by allowing you to be racist. I think if you were racist and everyone was cheering for you, that would be one thing, but, but it's like, it's just not that. Um, and it's, it's so cool too, because like the way that stuff comes up, like we haven't really talked about your partner, Kim yet, but Kim is, I don't even know what, what race he would be, but he's definitely just like, not a white guy. Um, he's like clearly some other race in like the, the universe of disco Elysium. And, he acts as this sort of like, in, in some senses, he's your guide. In other senses, he's your leader. Other senses, he's kind of like your partner. But you kind of see a lot of the stuff manifest through him because, I I mean, like, you guys are all older men, right? So I don't know if you've had the experience. Josh, you lived in New York. Reed, I don't actually know where you live. But, like, there's a thing that happens when you turn into, a, like, an older guy, which is that other older men look at you and assume that, you'll like be down with whatever like weird, like racist, perverted, sexist shit they'll say. And they'll like look to you as a companion. Like I'll like be riding in a taxi and a dude will be like, wow, check that girl out over there, dude. And it's like, dude, I don't know like why you think this is an okay line for us to cross. Like I'm not going to be with you here. And like even like people I know like back in my hometown and stuff will like do this stuff now. And it's like, I'm not with you on this. It's the bro code, dude. It's so weird, but I think it's so it's so great in this game that you have someone like Kim here because oftentimes you're talking to people and they'll say stuff to you that's kind of like this. And Kim is like, uh, 
this is fucked up. Like this is not the way this is supposed to it's be. One of the first, if you're it's like, one of the first interactions you have with this character where he, he kind of shines through because you first meet him and he's just like, hey, I'm your partner. And then you're just telling him like, uh, I don't remember shit. Uh, I'm, you're saying weird stuff to him and he's just like, okay. He's just like kind of going with it because he, like, he knows that this is his situation, but you're not getting much out of him because he's just kind of aloof in a like kind of measured way. And then you like go outside and you meet this racist lorry driver who is his like name is in the game is like racist lorry driver when he racist lorry him. driver. Yeah. <laughs> and then he does that Kyle where he like says something to you that's like racist and he, or he like he just makes like a, a really off color remark and then Kim just like his voice comes out and he's just it just lays, he lays in and you're just I was doing like a like oh shit like yeah. oh he just fucking verbally owns him and you have no control over that as you know a character because that's just what he says in that moment he just has this like extremely like dope measured outburst where he's just like taking this guy down four notches and you're like okay all right i was like this guy every, is the shit every moment in the game when kim actually like full-on asserts himself is fantastic because he's like he's always just sort of taking it in <laughs> processing it and he'll he'll talk to you about it later if he has something important that he wants to tell you like <laughs> yeah, with all yeah. sorts of things like interviewing a suspect or something he'll just sort of like back you up uh he's such a good but character. then like a few times i don't know kim is the ultimate bro he there's is something the to be said dude. for the fact that he one of the first like most likable things that happens in this game is that he comes out very anti-racism very like yeah. anti this <laughs> yeah. shit immediately and so like every time you do something that like is like even slightly racist even if you're like playing the devil's advocate or uh, like trying to appease some asshole you feel like you're disappointing kim which is like your number one motive in the game is like to not yeah. disappoint <laughs> i think kim that's happy. the one thread between everyone who's played disco elysium is like even no matter what kind of playthrough you're doing you don't want to not be bros with Kim because he's like the, the best, you know? Well, it's like when Harry does stupid shit, like I'm trying to think of some examples, like he'll yell at inanimate objects or you can let him do that. Or he can like kick that post, uh, was that mailbox that he gets mad at or that oh, he yeah. needs to like, he wants to figure out and he can just like kick the shit out of it. Um, or try to jump over things if, like, I didn't have the high physical stat either. And if he, like, wipes out or just does something really stupid. Like, if Harry was on his own, then it's just him and his own interior monologue saying, like, you look like an asshole. But Kim is just like, you know, it's it's like, I don't know. He He's always there and he's not. Uh, he's understanding. Yeah, and I think there's like this dynamic between the two of them too where Kim makes it pretty clear from the front that he doesn't respect the fact that you have amnesia from drinking so much uh, from like going on such like a ridiculous bender that you don't know your name or where your gun or badge are. Uh, like he doesn't respect that, but he's still going to be professional. And he like, gives you his fucking spinners, dude. He gives you his spinners. <laughs> 
This guy's got spinners that he confiscated, and then you pawn them off. Like that's the way well, I missed this, bro. What? Oh, you missed this? I didn't gotta get this at all. Oh, what happens? Like when I when you try to pay rent on the first night or your your uh-huh. bill for the hotel, the hostel, um, and you can't pay it, you'll just ask him, you're like, dude, I need fucking help. And then you go to the clerk, what's his name? Or the guy behind the counter. Vart Bart? Uh something like no. Gart. Gart. Yeah, Gart. Gart. But yeah. and then uh he he's like, You have to pay the money, dude. Like, get the money or you can't stay here. And then you Kim you're like, yo, Kim, like, you got any ideas? He's like, All right, we'll, we'll just go back to the police car and I got something back there that we can sell or something. And then you go and he has fucking spinner rims in the back of his car. Like that he, con- <laughs> that he confiscated not from somebody. That. And then you're, he's like, all right, let's just go to the pawn shop. We'll sell these. And then we can use that to pay for the hotel tonight. And then uh, that's just like, you're just like, this guy's such a bro. Cause a, he has fucking spinners that he wanted to spinners. keep. He wanted to keep these spinners cause he loves his car. He's a total fucking car head. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> it's just such like a great little character nuance. Um, but there's all this shit about Kim where it's just like you you want him to like you. And when it pays that back, too, because Harry is actually a good detective, despite the fact right. that he, they call him the human can opener because he gets... Because his methods just like just extract everything out of people, which is just amazing. And when you're doing your work, when you're at the crime scene and you have these weird ass fucking voices talking to you in your head, you're talking to a dead body in some fucking imagined world. You're picturing things that are like 500 miles away. You're feeling like the earth in your skin and it's all helping you to take in these crime scenes and you feel like, damn. I am one with the pale, like I am one with the fucking void, and that gives me the power to like understand these scenarios in a way that like nobody else can, and to like get things out of people that like nobody else can. And even though it seems like I'm crazy, like I have all this stuff going on in my head, there's like something more to it. And Kim is the one who sees that in you. He's the one. Yeah. He's the one who. He's like the only person who acknowledges that like the shit going on with you is some underlying layer to like a brilliance above it. And it's like that. How could you not love this man for this shit? You know, they make, that's like the most love. He understands who you are. That's fucking gorgeous. That's, ah, everybody wishes they had a friend like him who saw in in you what others don't. You know, I just got to go play more Disco Elysium and just hang with Kim some more. We should probably do a podcast itself on just like favorite Kim Kutsuragi moments. <laughs> the um, spinners moment is like for sure a top 10. Well, do you guys know about the pinball thing? The, the pinball thing? thing? Oh, man. In the we'll save it room? for the episode. Save it for the episode. I think I know what you're talking about. But, um, but let's save it. <laughs> we have, I know we're almost, we're at like. 50 minutes do we want to talk about one more thing before we wrap it it feels like we're still just circling this game there's just we're just trying to poke it kind of like so there's a container oh my god okay yeah 
So <laughs> talk about this. So we talked about Everett Claire, so it's kind of relevant. But like, so on the way to this, this actually ties into a lot of that stuff, stuff in the episode. Um, I mean, I want to, the opener for this is I think the idea that like, if Disco Elysium is about anything, it's specifically about, I think, both the fallacy and the power of clinging to an ideology where it's like something that is, if you do it, it can be destructive, but it's also very powerful in and of itself. Like people, who, you see people in the game that have very strong ideologies who are in places of power, but you also have people who have really strong ideologies, like literally gunned down in a firing range. Like there's, so it's, it really holds these two things well, and it doesn't necessarily make a claim on like what ideology is right or not besides centrism. I think it's the only thing it hates. Um, but so this ties into this other thing. So on the way to see Everett Claire, there is, uh, he lives in a shipping container, but there's another shipping container that is, uh, like kind of on the way that has a door, but it's locked and you can't get inside of it. And so I was talking to Josh and Harry is just, when you're passing by it, he's like, there's something in that container, man. Yeah. And then Kim's like, there's nothing. It's just a, there's hundreds of containers here. There's nothing in this It's literally a container. container. And he, he, yeah. he's just like, it's giving you all I these like know, checks man. of like, try to find a way into the container. You could kick it as hard as you can and nothing happens. These are very hard skill checks. They're all like impossible. So I, I started. That's what I was trying to remember. Yeah. I started a different can playthrough. Can you do checks for it? I started a different playthrough uh-huh. that was like an intelligence build or whatever when my first one was more like empathy and shit like that. And still... The, all the checks were like extremely tough for that container. Yeah, I remember because I remember when you first walk by it, I don't even remember like seeing the ability to do some checks. Like I remember like exhausting my options. And I only like, I think I got stuck at a point a little bit where I didn't realize I had to do a thing. And I was just like, well, maybe I'll go back to see Everett Claire. And I walked by this container and like a check had appeared and I was like, oh, and it was really high. I don't remember what, I think, I, so I did like a, a pretty much empathy playthrough almost exclusively. Uh, and maybe like a little bit of the yellow one, which I think is like, um, I don't know. It's like mind stuff. Uh, Motorix. Motorix, I think. Yeah, that mm. sounds right. Because it's like hand-eye coordination. Well, I guess I also did some conceptualization and stuff. But so anyways, I go back to this crate after having failed it, like Josh is saying. And I have this check. And the check is to whisper to the crate and ask it to open itself. Yeah. And I was like, okay, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> See what happens. And I do it and the crate responds. Okay, come in. <laughs> you hear the door unlock. And you walk inside. And so it's a, it's a shipping crate um, as you might expect. But inside this crate is, I gotta, I don't remember what exactly it's called. Um, there's a guy in there whose name is, uh, <laughs> fuck. It's like crazy light bending guy. <laughs> I tried to scroll up in our conversation to figure out the exact name of it. Um, do you guys remember? I didn't get into the crate. Oh man. Well, I posted a picture of it. Oh, I know. I posted in the bad end discord. Mega rich light bending uh, guy. Mega rich light bending guy. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I mean, I, luckily I have the text here. It says 
The man stands at the far end of the shipping container. It's hard to say anything more about him. You cannot make out any of his details, but you do feel the overwhelming presence presence of dot 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 capital. <laughs> so this the this guy, the mega rich light bending guy, is literally like you start talking to him and he's just a mega rich dude. The whole idea of this person is that he's incredibly rich and he's like in his shipping container because it's like an easy way to get around. <clears throat> John itself is like a uh, totally crazy thing. <clears throat> But so you start talking to him and like, like we were talking earlier about how it's easy for Harry to be kind of like broke. And even on the first night, you can like pawn off Kim's, Kim's rims to stay in this thing. So it's kind of a, a common conversation option at the start of the game where you can ask people for money. And so it, you can basically ask the mega rich light bending guy for money because the whole idea of his character, as you start to realize is that he's so rich that he bends reality around him. So like light bends around this guy and like reality literally distorts around him because he's so the picture rich. that Kyle so sent of this, the screenshot is one of the most straight up weird thing, like visually things that I've seen from this game period. Oh yeah. 100%. I yeah. Get, it's I like, um, look at it. it's in the, if you go to the spoilers channel and uh, the bad end discord, Anybody else who's reading this, we also do another podcast called Bad End. You can subscribe to it in the same way you find podcasts. But um, yeah, so just like, excuse me, my voice is, <clears throat> well, um, just to like the point of ideologies, it's like, so you basically you can talk to him and like you can ask him for money. And then there's two options that are both red checks. And one of them is like pitch him a bad idea. And another one is like ask him for money or something. And I get the I I failed my check unfortunately. Oh no I no 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 I actually passed my check, but he didn't like my idea, so I didn't get any money. But I get the sense that if you actually talk to him and you like pitch him the right idea, you'll just get like a fuck ton of money, like thousands of dollars, um, because it seems like he's got so much. It seems like the sort of situation where like it's a great state from the game developer's perspective to basically just dump a lot of money on you to go buy all the shit. Um, but I like, didn't get the money. Maybe he never gives you the money. Who can say? Um, but like the idea of ideology, and this is so interesting because again, like talking about the power of ideologies, this guy who was totally like invested himself in like capitalism and capital has got to this point where he's like ascended reality and like is now literally distorting it around him and kind of like sucks you into his like light bending zone. Um, <laughs> so yes. Fucking crazy. I don't even know what else to the say about it. The fact that him. this exists in the game is nuts. How many players are going to see this? Did you get an achievement for it or something? Uh, Maybe. The I don't know. Mega rich lightning guy. Like, you know, I feel like how I, many I talked, players? I bet there's one if you like pitch him a good idea. If you're like, get the money from the light bending guy. Maybe if you pitch him I a bad know. idea, he pays you. I'm going to see if I can load up another old save that's like near that. Cause I think it saves me walk inside, but I will actually luckily on the screenshot. I have the day. So I have day five. So maybe I can try to load up a day five save and go back. Um, the one so yeah, that's fucking crazy. There's also, it reminds me of like, I don't know if you guys actually got this. We don't have to talk about it now, but there's that room inside the apartments. That's like halfway through from the entrance over to like where Kuno's dad lives. You can like see somebody's feet in that room, but I can never open it. 
Did you guys get that? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Isn't it like the real estate person or some shit? Yeah. Isn't it like the person Uh, who like owns, they say they own the building or they're like doing a routine inspection or some shit like that? Oh, maybe. I just remember there's a room that like you try to knock on it and they're like, I don't have to let you in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You talk to the, like, you talk to the person who's like in the hallway, the lady who's like the groundskeeper or whatever. And she, uh-huh. she oh, like, yeah. tells you some stuff about them, and you're like, I know who you are, and then they let you in or some shit like that. Um, oh. Yeah, there's a bunch of just stuff like that. Did you get the um, the dead body on the boardwalk into the... Let's talk about to... that next time. Okay. Oh, yeah. There, Cause yeah, that's... yeah. I have a good story about that, too. Because I think that ties into some other characters, too, and then it would be like a whole... A whole thing. But the Just dead body on the boardwalk is an interesting character. <laughs> I um, all by um, the way, I never got the Kuno's dad shit. Really? Yeah, it's all very like what? Oh. Mind blowing for me. Cause I could never yeah, pass also, my checks with Kuno. Oh yeah. Oh Kuno. We gotta talk is, about Kuno uh, too. Kuno, there's a lot going on with, with old Kuno. <laughs> all right let's uh let's wrap it up and then we can we'll talk we got we got listen we got more episodes we don't know how many we're gonna do this maybe we'll do this podcast go on not forever not forever but maybe there'll be some some structure right yeah i mean we gotta gotta dice yeah sorry no you're good i was just gonna say that i think we'll probably keep talking about it and then once we have our twitter and stuff up and running uh you guys can hit us up there uh for questions or stuff you want us to cover or talk about um i also want to say by the time this goes up uh our logo will be live which is looking so great uh so shout out to the artist um i can actually pronounce his name it's artyom trukhanov he we found him because he did some cool fan art of disco elysium that the disco elysium team retweeted we reached out to him and he's now produced the amazing logo for this podcast. So thank you, Artem. Um, we love it. So, so yeah. It's a good logo. It's a good logo. So we'll, uh, yeah, I guess we can wrap remind it up. Me, Do you guys want to say anything else? Yeah, remind me to stick a pin in. We, we got to talk about this this ideology stuff that Kev Game brought up this time. But if we started talking about it now, it would be at least half an hour of more podcasting. I'm about right. this well, game's viewpoints on well both you and kyle said and i was thinking about this but it's a whole other thing this is a this is a teaser oh okay <laughs> <you> remember to <laughs> return to it is that you you were both saying that this this game sort of like rejects all of these ideologies that these characters hold and i think there's a lot to talk about in this in this game vis-a-vis like it's it's relationship to like really dominant 20th century political ideologies. Mm. That, oh that yeah, for into. sure. For sure. I totally I feel agree. like one thing yeah, at Disco Elysium, that's, that's an enormous topic. Disco Elysium like makes me want to be smarter to like actually <laughs> grapple properly with its themes. Yeah. Yeah. Same. It's, it's yeah, the rare game that, that enough, like huh? feels way smarter <laughs> yeah, right? than you are. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's end it up. I just want to comfort you that you're the smartest person in the world. Yeah. We're, uh, we're hey, you should fair. say 
But yeah, yeah, but you should say where people can listen to to your others podcast. Oh yeah. So we're uh we're this is Josh Reed and Kyle. We are the doing the Savoir Fair podcast under can we say the network name now? Is that a Yeah, thing? let's do it. Let's do it. So we are under the Superculture Network, host of other great things Yay. like Bullet Points, like Bad End. Um I imagine we'll have a website at some point, but until then you can find this podcast on Twitter at a handle that I don't know yet. Uh, you can find bad end at just search us on Twitter. You'll find, you'll find this stuff. Um, but hopefully some sort of super culture website will also be a destination. Otherwise uh, you found us. Congratulations. Uh, we don't have any actual URLs to point to yet, but it's happening. We're all together as a big family. We have a lot of ideas and hopefully some new stuff as well. But, you know, until then and until the next one, thank, thanks everyone for listening. Ciao.